Attention, all troops. He's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Retroism. Today I'd like to take a brief moment talk to you about the moment when your childhood starts to become unraveled. Now, it's usually not one event, but sometimes you can trace things to an event when you started perhaps thinking differently. I'm sure there was more than just this one occasion, but when I started to do this show, I started thinking back to this particular moment, and then my adult brain started realizing that I started questioning more things after this event. So my sister's who were a little bit older than me, would often have their boyfriends over to the house. And they were teenagers at this point, a little older. And some of them were cool, some of them weren't. Usually they didn't bother me none. I was playing video games or hanging out with my friends or watching TV. In one instance, I was watching a TV show called The Jetsons. And one of their boyfriends came in, plopped down on the couch next to me, and said to me, don't you think it's weird that George can fold his car up into a suitcase, yet they have parking lots all over the place in the future. I kind of looked over at him and thought, huh, that's true. He sat there, watched maybe 10 minutes of the Jetsons and left. But what he said stuck with me. I kept thinking, well, it doesn't make any sense. Why, why do they have these parking lots? Did people just go in and put their suitcases down? Why don't they just have luggage racks? I don't know the answer to this. Maybe some cars don't fold up and George just happens to have one that does. But I started looking for other holes in things at that point and started thinking about the bigger picture or the story. Why in G.I. Joe doesn't anybody ever get killed? What do the people in Scooby-Doo do for a living? How are they able to travel all the time? Do they get paid for their cases? These were questions I needed the answers for. These are questions I still kind of need the answers for. I guess the real answer is, it doesn't matter, because these shows are made for kids who don't ask those questions. That's why when you look back at TV as an adult and watch things you watched as a child, you see so many problems with it. This wasn't made for an adult you. But if you concentrate really hard, and perhaps strike the balance of the right amount of sugar, and the right amount of overstimulation, you can kind of catch glimpses of those moments, and enjoy those shows all over again. On today's show, I'm going to talk about one of those shows, The Jetsons. We're going to talk about the plot of the show, the characters, the actors behind them, the different runs of the series, how well the show did when it came out. We'll touch a little bit about the music, the movies, where it was outside of the movies, its release on home video, and of course, where are the Jetsons today. We have a very special episode because we have a guest who I get to interview, none other than Judy Jetson herself, Janet Waldo, who I was lucky enough to talk to. We have an info-packed episode ahead of us, so without further ado, let's start the show.
the original Jetsons premiered on Sunday nights on ABC on September 23, 1962, and ran till March 3, 1963. That original series had a 24-episode run, and when it was done, would be rerun on Saturday mornings for decades afterwards. This is where almost everyone became familiar with the Jetsons. At the time of its debut, it was very futuristic in that it was the first program to be broadcast in color on ABC. Now, I know what you're thinking. I've seen the Flintstones, which are much earlier, and those are in color. While the Flintstones were produced in color, it was broadcast in black and white for the first two seasons it ran. The Jetsons running in syndication and its seemingly endless longevity would lead it to be revived in the 80s, and we'll talk a little bit about that later. But first, let's concentrate on the plot of the show. The main character in the show is George Jetson and his family. They live in the Skypad Apartments in a futuristic place called Orbit City. And in Orbit City, all the homes and businesses are raised way above the ground. Very futuristic. George is married to Jane, who is a stay-at-home mom, and they have two children, a teenage daughter named Judy and a son named Elroy. They also have a dog named Astro and a housekeeping robot named Rosie. The 60s version plots are typical of sort of 50s sitcoms, a lot of borrowed gags from 50s sitcoms, dealing with work, family, and what goes wrong along the way. Judson works at Spacely Space Sprockets, which seems like a pretty great place to work, although the boss is a little mean, in that he only works nine hours a week, three hours a day, three days a week. The future seemed awesome when you watch this show. The show was produced by Hannah Barbera, was directed by William Hanna and Joseph Barbera, and each episode would run for 30 minutes with commercials. Today's show is brought to you by New Homes. Why live in an old home when you could live in a new home? Make way for the livables, the all-new concept in Love those high-concept new homes. The characters of the Jetsons are iconic, and they're very similar in characteristics to other sitcom families that came before it and many that would come after it. There is a formula to these things. At the heart of the family is George Jetson, who's 40 years old, is a family man, kind of always makes the wrong decisions, and is often the butt of the jokes. He is married to Jane, who is seven years younger. Jane is a fashion and gadget-obsessed homemaker, who is always trying to make life as good as possible for her family. She's also a big fan of art. Their eldest child is named Judy Jetson, who's 16, sort of a stereotypical 60s teenage girl, but I guess stereotypical in the future. Her interests include hanging out, clothes, music, and she would in fact go on to have a music career. Elroy Jetson is six and a half years old and is the youngest of the Jetson clan. Smart kid, very good at science. The family dog is Astro. In the future, dogs are kind of cool because they can talk, although not perfectly. Astro sort of speaks in a rough growl. Prior to belonging to the Jetsons, Astro belonged to the very rich, and I love this name, Mr. Got Rockets, which, that's just great. Rosie, who's 45 years old, is the Jetsons' robot. She's an outdated model, but the Jetsons love her. She does all the household chores and sort of does the discipline of the house. 
She doesn't make too many appearances outside of the closing credits in the original series run, but she was very well loved, and when the show was revived in the 80s, she got a lot more play. Cosmo G. Spacely is George's boss and the owner of Spacely Sprockets. He's got a bad temper, and in the original series, is often the antagonist to George. There's a running gag in the series that has him kicking George out of his office and shouting, You're fired! Cosmo G. Spacely's big rival is Spencer Cogswell, owner of Cogswell Cogs, or Cogswell's Cosmic Cogs. In the 80s version of the show, they would introduce a character named Orbity, who's an alien with spring-like legs, who has the ability to change color. And one of my favorite characters is George's mortal enemy, Uniblab, who is an obnoxious robot who's also George's supervisor at work. He only appears in two episodes from the original run, in an episode where he becomes George's supervisor and another one where he becomes the sergeant of George's military platoon. I just love the name Uniblab. Back to work. Back to work. Everybody. Work, 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 work. Work, work. Now let's talk a little bit about the actors who bring voice to these characters. You had two people playing George Jetson. George O'Hanlon played George originally, and he passed away in 1989, and he would be replaced by Jeff Bergman. George O'Hanlon, probably best known as the voice of George Jetson. In the 40s and 50s, he was the star of these live-action Joe McDokes short subjects. After he passed away, he was replaced by Jeff Allen Bergman, voice actor, provides the modern-day voices of many classic cartoon characters, including Bugs Bunny, Elmer Fudd, Yosemite Sam, George Jetson, and Fred Flintstone. He's still working today, recently becoming a recurring cast member on Family Guy, usually doing Fred Flintstone, and has also done some voices on the related Cleveland show. Jane Jetson was voiced by Penny Singleton, Recently, in some Radio Shack commercials, she was also voiced by Lori Frazier. Singleton was born in 1908 and died in 2003. During her long career, Singleton is probably best known for her role as Blondie Bumstead in the 28 pictures they made about the character that ran from 1938 until 1950, and the popular radio program that ran from 39 to 50. Elroy Jetson was voiced by Dawes Butler, later by Patrick Zimmerman and Jeff Bergman, who I mentioned also does the voice of George Jetson. Dawes Butler was a immensely popular voice actor, did a lot of the great voices that came out of Hanna-Barbera, including Yogi Bear, Snagglepuss, and Huckleberry Hound. Astro the Dog and Uniblab were voiced by Don Messick. Don passed away in 1997, is probably best known for his work at Hanna-Barbera, where he was the original voice of Scooby-Doo. He was also the original voice of Papa Smurf, a great voice that is hard to replace. Rosie was voiced by Jean Vanderpile, who passed away in 1999. She was an American actress who appeared in radio, television, movies, a career that spanned decades, probably best remembered as the voice of Wilma Flintstone. And if you listen to Rosie, occasionally you hear Wilma in there. She would also provide the voice of Pebbles on the Flintstones. Mr. Spacely was originally voiced by Mel Blanc. Mel Blanc is probably the most well-known voice during the golden age of American animation the Looney Tunes phase, where he would voice Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Porky Pig, Foghorn Leghorn, Wiley Coyote. The guy did everything. He was an amazing talent. He would be replaced by Jeff Bergman, who would take over the voice of Mr. Spacely after he passed away. Mr. Cogswell was voiced by Dawes Butler, and Orbity, that 
Johnny-come-lately was voiced by Frank Welker. Frank Welker, a great voice actor, probably best known as the voice of Megatron in the Transformers. And I've talked about him a couple of times on the show. Last but not least is Janet Waldo, who did the voice of Judy Jetson, except for one instance where Tiffany did the voice of Judy Jetson in the Jetsons movie that they made. Miss Waldo is one of the last surviving original cast members of the Jetsons, and I was very honored to have the opportunity to sit down and talk with her. Janet Waldo is an American actress, born in 1924, still working today, has had an incredible career on radio and television. She's also done animated and live-action films, probably best known as the voices of Judy Jetson, Penelope Pitstop, and Josie in Josie and the Pussycats. Back when radio was supreme, she was probably best known as the voice of Corliss Archer in radio's Meet Corliss Archer. She was so heavily identified with that role that when they did the comic book adaptation of Meet Corliss Archer, it was her they used as the model for the character. If you're a Disney fan, you can also hear Janet Waldo's voice in the fourth scene of Walt Disney's Carousel of Progress, where she plays the grandmother. Miss Waldo, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us today. Not a lot of people might know this, but before you were working in animation, you had been discovered by Bing Crosby, and you had the opportunity to work with Bing Crosby on the Ozzie and Harriet show. Well, I did Emmy Lou, the little teenager who lived next door. And and one time Bing was a guest on their show, and I had to do Emmy Lou squealing and screaming about Bing, and of course it just came natural to me because he had brought me to Hollywood. So I I loved radio, and the audiences were the best part. I did many shows that weren't audience shows, but the, you learn so much from the audience. You know, the reaction of the audience just gave you adrenaline. It was just wonderful. Actually, one time I, I was called, I lived very close to the studio, and I had just learned to drive. And they called me and said that they had a little a young girl who was playing a part on a TV, on a radio show, and she freaked. She couldn't do it because it was live. You know, it was all live in front of a live audience. And they said, can you get here in 15 minutes? And I said, oh, well, you know, I barely learned to drive. And I he said, yes, yes, I'll be there. I live very close. I got in my car, went, and a policeman stopped me because he said, young lady, you are speeding. And I said, well, I have to get there. I have to be on a radio show that's live. I have to be there. And he said, oh, okay, I'll take you. So he led me into the studio. I said, do you want to see the show? He stayed and watched the show. Then afterwards, I said, did you like it? He said, it was great. I loved it. And here's your ticket. <laughs> so he got a free show and you didn't even get out of the ticket? <laughs> I didn't get out of the ticket, but he was a nice audience. <laughs> loved audiences. But most of the radio shows that I did were, were non-audience radio shows. Like, um, well, do you want to hear about radio? You don't remember radio, do you really? I am a huge fan of radio. Well, did you ever hear Meet Corliss Archer? Oh, yeah. That's me. That was the first job I got playing myself because in pictures, you know, they wanted you to be glamorous, and I was just too young to be glamorous. I didn't know how to be sexy, you know, and I was working with gorgeous women, but um, the only thing is I just was uncomfortable in pictures, and when I did radio, I was signed to do Meet Corliss Archer, who was my favorite age, 15, <laughs> and uh, I played, I did that. I had that show for a while, and then I did lots and lots and lots of other radio shows. And then when I was uh, auditioning for the Jetsons, um, they called my agent, and I was doing a, a series with Tony Franciosa called Valentine's Day. And 
I was liking it. It was fun. But they said, will you uh, audition for a cartoon? And I said, oh, it's like radio. I'd love to. I'd love to. So that's how I got Judy Jetson. When you worked on the Jetsons, what was the process around which you recorded an episode? We all worked together, and I, it was such fun. I was, of course, I was always scared. You know, I was running scared every place. But I went to audition, and I, I won the audition. I auditioned with several people, uh, males. I'd never auditioned with Penny Singleton. They just hired her. But I auditioned with other women for Jane as Judy. I was signed as Judy, and then we went into the session, and they were all sitting around a table with scripts. That's the first read-through. You would have a, Everybody would have a script, and we would read together the whole script. And it was so wonderful because you could hear what the other people were doing. You could, you know, it, the rapport was so good. And then uh, Joe would read the entire storyboard. They had the storyboard, and he would read it all himself. So he told us exactly what he wanted us to do. I, I soon lost my nervousness because I worked with these wonderful actors. Most of them I had worked with before in radio. They were, you know, from the theater. They were brilliant actors. Uh, Penny Singleton, George O'Hanlon, Dawes Butler, Mel Blanc, Jean Vanderpile. They were real, real actors. Incredibly daring and, and really versatile. And Mel Blanc... And Don Messick and Dawes Butler, do you remember those names? Oh, yeah. They were very quiet, reserved, and they were sort of dressed in conservative suits. And, you'd, you know, they just looked like businessmen until they were in front of the microphone. And then they would absolutely cut loose. And the, the actor who really inspired me, one of the first, the second show that I did for the Jetsons, was Howie Morris. Do you remember Howie Morris? Oh, yeah, Jet Screamer. Well, he did the Teenage Idol. And he... Was, he was waving his arms and flaunting, you know, just going crazy in front of the microphone. And I thought, oh, boy, this is fun because you don't have to worry about the audience. <laughs> but, he was, but they were very quiet, reserved people until they were in front of the microphone. And Joe was good. Joe, one time I was doing The Perils of Penelope Pit Stop uh, with Joe Barbera and uh, Paul Lind was the villain. And uh, Joe pushed the talk back on the, from the booth, you know, from the sound booth. And he said, Paul, you don't sound like Paul Lind. And Paul said, what do you mean, Joe? I am Paul Lind. And he said, no, this is the way you sound. So Joe did an imitation of Paul. And then Paul did an imitation of Joe doing Paul Lind. <laughs> That's wonderful. Joe was brilliant. He knew everything the, the way that people should sound, he knew exactly what he wanted from them, and he knew how to get it. And what he would do would be, uh, you'd read something for him, and he'd say, um, what else have you got? And then you'd try another voice or another character, and then he'd say, uh, okay, try another one. Or he, as I say, he, he would audition around the table. But he gave me some wonderful characters, like the mother-in-law on the Flintstones. <laughs> And uh, Granny Sweet, a little old lady on a motorbike. And I got to do all sorts of far-out characters that you would never be allowed to do in person. <laughs> Voice only. <laughs> it's weird. You really seem to describe yourself as kind of camera shy. I am. I am very camera shy. Uh, in fact, I enjoyed the Tony Francielsa show. But truly, I was glad to be doing cartoons because... I worried about the false eyelashes. I worried about the hairstyle. I worried about about everything. You know, I was 
I was nervous doing uh, on camera, and uh, but I, that one I had more fun than most of them. Most of them um, were hard <laughs> because you know you had to get there at six o'clock or seven o'clock in the morning, and then usually they wouldn't get around to your close up till eight o'clock in the evening. You know, <laughs> it was hard doing on camera, and then besides, I was intimidated by some of the beautiful people that I worked with and I only discovered after a few months that they couldn't act. <laughs> Does it surprise you that even during your animation work that I, I know I talked to some people and I, they were very excited that I was going to be talking to you because a lot of them you were even the animated version of you was their first crush. Happy to hear that because I'm I'm for crushes. Joe Barbera was my first big crush. I I that's so sweet. Oh, I'm so thrilled about that. Yeah. Oh, there's a lot of them. Oh, oh, that's thank you for telling me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thrilled. But uh, I, it was just a wonderful time in cartoons. And you know the thing that interests me is that you know the Jetsons had the food arrival cycle, which is now the microwave oven, um, the Visiphone, mm -hmm. which is equivalent of the Skype today. You know, the Visiphone. I remember the Visiphone on, on the Jetsons. Um, Jane Jetson would say, oh, I can't answer that. I, haven't, I don't have my makeup on because she was being photographed. Now the Visiphone is the Skype phone in which you can talk on the phone and be seen at the same time. That's straight out of the Jetsons. And I believe that the Jetsons are responsible for a lot of the wonderful new inventions that we have because kids grew up with the Jetsons and a lot of them invented these things. Yeah, I grew up wanting all that yeah. stuff. But the writers at Hanna-Barbera were really true visionaries. They were, they were really wonderful. And uh, they, they sort of tapped onto the power of family, too, because jo Jane, George, Judy, and Elroy loved each other and supported each other and even when Judy did something totally crazy they were all they hung together you know it was a good it was a good family unit and that's what Joe intended it to be he wanted it to be a normal family and outer space just like a normal family before then you know yeah. am i am i just chatting too much not at all actually i love it um i you know Love these shows and, and grew up with them. And uh, I watched the original, obviously, the original one. And then when they picked it back up in the 80s um, and, and started making new ones, uh -huh. was uh, was there a big difference in the production when you were doing the, the 60s version versus the 80s version? Well, they tried to keep it as close as, as the original as possible. But I will admit that Joe Barbera directed the first 24 episodes, and he was brilliant. But they did have other directors with the new ones, and they did them much faster. Joe would take six hours to do one session. Wow. And they, the new sessions they would do in an hour, an hour and a half. And uh, I thought some of them were great, and some of them were not so great, but, but uh, I thought... They did a pretty good job, really. Of um, How do you feel about that? Did you compare them? I mean, can you tell the difference? I actually found the earlier ones a bit more relatable. The the ones in the 80s seemed to get a little bit more fantasy-based, science fiction-y based. And then 
I liked the ones in the sixties cause it was more, this is the family. And it just happened to be that they were in a science fiction world. Exactly. You are quoting what Joe Barbera tried to convey, wow. which was, they just happened to be in a, in a world of the future, but they were a normal family. And he was very family oriented. You know, he, he chose Penny Singleton and George O'Hanlon because uh, Penny Singleton was doing a series called Blondie in radio, mm-hmm. and it was a family series, and he wanted just that homey, nice, real quality, and uh, George O'Hanlon also. But the only thing is, neither George nor Jane would, would do other voices. Mm-hmm. Um, just... Um, I was dying to do other voices, and I, when I found out that when Howie Morris was up there waving his arms around as Jet Screamer, I thought, oh, that's fun. I want to do something wild. I want to do something. And so I asked Joe Barbera if, um, if I could, and he said, make me a tape, and I did. I, by the way, I, you might know my husband, who was um, Robert E. Lee of Lawrence and Lee. He wrote... Um, Inherit the Wind, and Name, and Anti-Name. I don't know if you knew. Oh, yes. You did Inherit the Wind was one of the first plays I saw. Really? Yep. Aww. Major talent. That is amazing. Oh, that's so sweet of you, because, in fact, right now, I'm trying to, the last thing he wrote, his name was Robert E. Lee, Mm -hmm. and he loved that name. In fact, when we were married, I tried to get him to take out the E, and I said, my Mrs. Robert E. Lee, and he says, that's right. I said, could you take out the E? And he said, no way. So he loved his name, Robert E. Lee, and he loved the general, Robert E. Lee. He knew every battle. He knew everything about Robert E. Lee, the general. So he wrote this wonderful drama about a relationship between uh, General Robert E. Lee and a northern girl. And it was a 40-year relationship by, by letter, and wow. it's called Lost Letters. And um, he, Bob wanted, my husband wanted to write something about Robert E. Lee by Robert E. Lee. He thought that was funny. Yeah. <laughs> so he did, and I've performed that several times and have gotten such wonderful reactions to it that I'm going to try to get, get it published. Oh, that's great. Because uh, I think it's deserving of publication. It's a really wonderful show. It's about the battles and about, you know, 40 years uh, she grows older and he grows older and they only correspond and uh, they talk about the world and what's going on and the horrors and uh, and the good and it was uh, it's really a very moving piece so I'm I'm very addicted to it and eager to get one day to get it published. I don't see why it wouldn't. He was a major talent and and Civil War stuff people seem to love so. Yeah, and he was such a student of the Civil War. He knew every battle. He knew everything that happened. But um, the people are confused who see it because they say, were those really the real letters from that northern girl? And Bob fictionalized those. But since he did that, they have discovered that there are letters um, that have been written to him. You know, Robert E. Lee, the general, really loved women. And... uh, he had correspondence with just wonderful correspondence, which we didn't use. It was all fiction, which what Bob used. But I think it's very dramatic. <laughs> yeah, I would love to see the performance of it. Even that would be a, a major. Treat. Well, listen, I, I might perform it again here in in California. Are you in California? Uh, I'm currently not, but I actually go back and forth. Because um, 
keep keep me informed and if I do it again I will I will invite you to come to a performance of it if you would like. I would love that. I love it because basically my great love is acting. And uh Judy Jetson was my joy, my my recreation, my happy days, but uh and sometimes Judy would have a little acting stint, but I love to just act <laughs> and playing and lots of things, people that don't resemble me at all. Like as a young girl, I did Joan of Arc. I did Mary Queen of Scots. I did all sorts of, you know, in little theater in Seattle, Washington. Mm-hmm. And so I, I really love, I always wanted to be on Broadway, but I'm settling for cartoons. <laughs> <laughs> There's there's nothing settling about cartoons. They they're wonderful. They're such fun. I can't begin to describe the joy that it is to do cartoon cartoons. And they're inventive. You feel yourself coming up with things that you didn't know you could do. It's yeah. just great fun and, and the Jetsons, of course, was the perfect one to have for my first show in cartoons. Yeah, not bad at all. And you went on to do you. You worked on Battle of the Planets too, didn't yes, you? Yes, we made eighty-five Battle of the Planets, and I did all the female characters in that. And uh, uh, Alan Young mm-hmm. uh, was in it, and uh, Casey Kasem, and a number of people. And we and Alan Dinehart directed it, and we did um, we did eighty-five episodes, and it's played all over London and uh, Europe, and. Uh, it was a Japanese film, and the only thing that was hard about that film, that recording, was that it was uh, it was in Japanese. So we had to time our dialogue to match that which had already been recorded in Japanese. So Alan Dinehart, who directed it, would keep a stopwatch, and he would say, "Okay, you have um, 20 seconds to do this line. You have." 35 seconds to do this line, you know, so we had to do it to time, which was a little bit challenging, but it was great fun to do, and we did do a lot of episodes. But let's put it this way, it was no, it was not like the Jetsons. The Jetsons was the most wonderful series I have ever done, the most exciting, rewarding show on cartoons that I've ever done, except for Penelope Pitstop, <laughs> which I loved. And um, Josie and the Pussycats, I just did a personal appearance the other day for Josie and the Pussycats. Um, and it, 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 was, it was a great, great period of my life doing cartoons. It's, it's so great, and I'm really honored to talk to you, actually. And, and uh, I hope to hear from you again. I would love to meet you one day. Oh, it would be, if you ever do the show or I'm ever in the area that you're at, I would, I would, it would be a real honor to, to meet you in person. Well, I just love talking with you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Well, and I've had a good time. I hope you have. I did. This was this is a real treat. I'd like to thank Miss Waldo for her time and remind everybody that Rockin' with Judy Jetson has just been made available through the Warner Archive. And if you're a big fan of the Jetsons, you've probably been waiting for this. It had only been made available on VHS. So get out there and pick up a copy today. Remember... Your kids won't know anything about the Jetsons or the Smurfs unless you educate them. So have them listen to The Retroist every week at Retroist.com. You'll be glad you did. When the show was released in 1962, it went over well. It wasn't a huge hit. People liked it. Sadly, not enough to keep it going. 
and the show would only have that one season run. But as I said, it continued playing on Saturday morning. So as a kid, you're watching it all the time. You really like it. Then the 80s come along, and Saturday morning cartoons are really in vogue. So they decide to revive the Jetsons in the 1980s. So the original run of the show was 24 episodes. And that was from September 23, 1962 to March 3, 1963. And then in 1984, Hanna-Barbera began producing new episodes just for syndication. So by September of 85, the original 24 episodes would be combined with 41 new episodes. And those would begin airing in late afternoon time slots in 80 U.S. markets. Those 41 new episodes didn't come cheap. They were produced at the cost of $300,000 an episode, and they included all the voice actors from the original 62 series. In 1987, 10 new season 3 episodes would also enter syndication. For those of you doing the math at home, the number of total episodes is 75. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1... Greetings, retro fans. This is Metagirl, bringing you the top five episodes of the cartoon series, The Jetsons. At number five is season two, episode 16, Fantasy Planet. The Jetsons put their problems aside and decide to take a trip to Fantasy Planet. Their host has each family member in their own capsule where they can live out their fantasies. Will their fantasies prove to be more than they desired? Number four is season one, episode 22, Private Property. A real estate misunderstanding at work promises big rewards for George. Unfortunately, he may have misunderstood and gotten things backwards. Number three is Season 2, Episode 38, Dancing Feet. George tries to make a good impression on Judy's dance party with experimental dancing shoes. Of course, the shoes could use a little work. At number two is Season 1, Episode 2, Jet Screamer. George thinks Judy is too obsessed with her favorite rock star, Jet Screamer. When he tries to sabotage her efforts to win a date with Jet, it all backfires on poor George. And the number one episode of The Jetsons is... Season 1, Episode 20, Miss Solar System. Jane decides to enter the Miss Solar System contest without George knowing. However, Spacely Sprockets is sponsoring the contest. Will she win? And who is the mystery judge? And there you have it, the Retroist's top five episodes of the cartoon series, The Jetsons. Until next time, List fans, this has been Metagirl. There were some differences between the 60s and the 80s version. First of all, Orbity joins the cast. Also, the animation is slightly different. And, of course, the plot, the music, and the references are all geared toward a different generation. The 80s version had a much more customized soundtrack, and the sounds themselves seemed more computerized because they were created on synthesizers. The 80s version would also delve into more fantasy and sci-fi, whereas the 60s version was pretty much a straight-up sitcom. Because of the success of the Jetsons, it would also spawn some television specials and television films. In 1987, They released The Jetsons Meet the Flintstones, a crossover that was long overdue. In 1988, they released Rockin' with Judy Jetson, which is now available on DVD. And in 1989, they released Hanna-Barbera's 50th, a Yabba Dabba Doo celebration. Outside of the movies and TV, The Jetsons would also make an impact. There would be comic books, starting way back in 63, with a release from Gold Key Comics. 
then Charlton would put out a set in 1970, then Harvey Comics would release some Jetsons-related things in 92-93, then Archie Comics in the mid-90s would release 17 issues of the Jetsons, and finally the Flintstones and the Jetsons would be released by DC Comics in the late 90s. The 90s were also the heyday for Jetsons-related video games, although there was an 80s game based on the Jetsons called The Jetsons' Way with Words, which was out for the Intellivision. In the 90s, The Jetsons and the Legend of Robotopia would be released for the Amiga, and again that year, By George and Trouble Again would be released for the PC. Then NES would pick up Cogswell's Caper, then they would release Robot Panic for the Game Boy in 1992, and then in 1994, they would release the Invasion of the Planet Pirates for the Super NES, and Flintstones Jetsons Time Warp for the CDI. I've played none of these games, but now I really want to. The home video release for the Jetsons TV series has been spotty, although the first season has been released, and it has commentary on two of the episodes by Janet Waldo. Season 2, Volume 1, was released in June of 2009, so we're still waiting on Season 2, Volume 2, and the complete third season. If you're a Jetsons fan, this probably sounds familiar to you. That is Eep, Op, Ork, Ah, Ah, which was originally performed on the show, but was picked up and remade by the Violent Femmes and is available on the CD Saturday Morning Cartoon. The Jetsons had some great music, and I think a compilation of all their music would be great. The music of the Jetsons, perhaps? Well, you probably know that in 1990, the Jetsons released Jetsons the Movie, which was an animated film. It had a lot of the original cast, except for Janet Waldo, who was replaced by Tiffany for some reason. While I'm a fan of Tiffany, I think it was a horrible idea. Now you're probably wondering, how come we have not seen a new Jetsons movie since then? Well, it is in the works. The director, Robert Rodriguez, entered talks with Universal and Warner Brothers back in 2007 to try to bring a theatrical release of the film out, and it would be live action. But he got sidetracked during his Spy Kids movies, so the movie is still in development, and I believe the writer working on it is Adam Goldberg. Currently, the movie is slated for a 2012 release, although I see nothing being filmed currently. So if you're a Jetsons fan, hopefully it'll be good, and hopefully we'll see something that lives up to the legacy of this great show. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, you can drop by the website at www.retroist.com. You can follow me on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at facebook.com slash retroist and twitter.com slash retroist. Thank you very much to Janet Waldo for appearing on the show. Remember that Rockin' with Judy Jetson is now available on DVD, so run over to the Warner Archive and pick that up. Thanks to Peachy, who does all the music you hear on the show. If you have musical needs, you can email Peachy at peachy at retroist.com. Thanks to Metagirl for the great top five list. If you have some feedback for Metagirl, you can email her at metagirl at retroist.com. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. Oh, Unibl one day you will be mine. This has been a Retroist production. Goodbye.